Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, The first Bible reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 17, which starts on page 310 in the Church Bibles. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a plant of that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed Um, wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time i have appointed leaders over my people israel i will also give you rest from all your enemies the lord declares to you that the lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. The second reading is from uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. And that is on page 1026 in the Church Bibles. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out uh, what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue set free, and uh, he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to his father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all, all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to look at your word, we thank you for the wonderful promises we have before us. Help us by your spirit to believe and to believe in a way which brings us lasting joy until Christ returns. In his name we pray. Amen. Please do take your seats. And good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you here. Again, well done for making it through the cold and uh, icy conditions to be here today. And uh, welcome if you're at home as well watching online. If you've closed your Bibles, then we're focusing on that second reading from Luke chapter 1. So page 1026 in the church Bibles. And in these weeks, building up to Christmas, we're looking at some of the key events at the very first Christmas. In particular, some key songs that people sang to help us understand what's going on. And last week, Mary's song. This week, Zechariah's song. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis describes Narnia as a land where it's always winter, but never Christmas. A hard land a cruel land where all the joy was gone. And in many ways, not a bad description of life in this world where often it does feel like it's always winter and never Christmas. I'm not just talking about the weather, although it has been very cold, hasn't it, recently? As far as I know, Christmas is still coming next week, don't worry. But at a deeper level, we've endured a two-year pandemic And then on the back of that, a major war, rising cost of living. This morning, behind the smiles, the joy of the Christmas season, I know for many it's a difficult time, a time of strain, a strain relationally, a strain financially. It can be a strain because we feel lonely. When so many people seem to have family and friends around them, perhaps we're here this morning knowing that we'll spend Christmas Day on our own. It can be a time of tremendous sadness, a time when we perhaps most keenly feel the loss of a loved one with whom we've spent many Christmases before, but who's no longer with us. And even if Christmas is a time of joy, The kind of joy Christmas brings to us is the kind of joy that can so quickly fade as the new year rolls around and all the challenges of life come rushing back to us. 
And as we pick up our series in Luke's gospel, this is the kind of world that Zechariah lived in, in the first century. The people of God languishing under the Roman rule at the time. There was poverty, oppression, a people living under the shadow of death. And most crucially of all, God felt absent. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people through a prophet. Signs of his power and presence were non-existent in Zechariah's day. And so no wonder when an angel appeared to old Zechariah and promised that his barren wife Elizabeth would give birth to a child, no wonder he didn't believe it. Those kind of things just didn't happen in Zechariah's day. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I love the way C.S. Lewis describes that moment when winter begins to lose its grip and the thaw comes and the ice begins to melt and rumors start to spread. Aslan is on the move. That's the kind of mood before us this morning as we come to our reading. When old Elizabeth does indeed give birth, we pick it up, verse 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Joy at last. And then the time comes to name the baby, and everyone just assumes that he'll take a family name, perhaps even the name of his dad, Zechariah. That was the custom of the day. But no, both Elizabeth and Zechariah are adamant. His name is John. And the crowds we read are astonished. Where does the name John come from? And then, at that very moment, Zechariah, who has been unable to speak for nine months, suddenly his mouth is opened and he starts singing praise. And the neighbors are in awe. Can we see the progression from joy to astonishment and then awe? There is a growing sense that something extraordinary is about to happen. God is on the move. And so verse 66, everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? And into this buzz of excitement, Zechariah, his mouth now open, begins to sing a prophetic song, a song empowered by the Holy Spirit that reveals what God is doing. At long last, after 400 years of winter, summer is coming. Let's dive in. Two points this morning. They are simple points, but they are utterly profound. The first is this. God remembers Verse 68, Zechariah sings, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I love walking in the Mayfield Valley. There's one particular route that we take which takes us across a field that often has cows in it, and sometimes there's a bull also in the field. And a couple of times this summer, the bull was right there on the path where we had to go. 
And uh, the bull was massive, rippling muscles, a huge neck, staring at me across the fence. I thought, maybe I'll send the dog in first and she can be a distraction <laughs> as I sneak around. Don't worry, I didn't do that. As I eyed up the bull, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to turn around and go back. I'll, I'll go a different way. Because there's something awesome, powerful about a, a bull. Imagine one with horns. Often in the Old Testament, the prophets use the picture of a bull with horns to represent a powerful king. And here we read of a horn of salvation being raised up for God's people. A powerful king. And in Luke 1, Zechariah understands that the baby Mary carries is going to be that horn of salvation. A great king. In fact, the great king who will bring salvation. Our first reading that Jordan read for us from 2 Samuel in the Old Testament describes God making a promise to the then king, King David, that one day a descendant would sit on the throne forever. Well, at long last, the time has come for that king to be born in fulfillment of the promises of the prophets as we read in verse 70. In other words... God remembers. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? If we're honest, as Christians. A few years ago, we were doing up a flat that we owned, and we were redoing the bathroom, and we ordered the bathroom suite online, and we were told by the delivery company that they would arrive one Friday morning with the bathroom suite between 9 and 1. I took a day off work. I was in the flat from nine until one. No bathroom suite arrived. I waited until three o'clock. I rang up the company. There was going to be no delivery that day, or in fact, any day. They'd completely forgotten about the order. Very frustrating. And at times, if we're honest as Christians, it does feel a bit like God has forgotten us. That he's made these promises to show up and do things, but we've waited and waited and waited, and he's just simply not done the things he said he would. And it feels like he's forgotten. King David lived 1,000 years before Zechariah. It's taken 1,000 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And as he continue to read through Zechariah's song, you begin to realize that his song is riddled with ancient promises from the Old Testament that have all taken a long time to come about. Verse 73 talks about God's covenant with Abraham. That's going back 2,000 years before Zechariah. That's back to Genesis 12. Uh, the promise of a messenger going before the Lord to prepare the way, that's John the Baptist. Well, that takes us to Malachi 3. That's 400 years ago. A light shining on the people in darkness. That's Isaiah 9, 600 years ago. For all these ancient Old Testament promises, generations have come, generations have gone. The centuries have rolled past. And it must have felt like to God's people that he's forgotten. But he hasn't. At just the right time, through a virgin who's about to give birth, God is acting to fulfill his promises to his people. God 
remembers. Today, we live on the other side of the birth of Jesus. We can look back and see that Mary's baby has gone on to fulfill the promises of Zechariah's song. And yet also, we still wait for the final fulfilling of these promises when Christ returns. We live in that season between his, his first coming and his second coming. And we live in a season that's marked by waiting. In verse 74, Zechariah talks of God's promise to rescue his people from all enemies. And yet today we look around the world, perhaps not in this country, but many Christians around the world are facing real and genuine persecution because of their faith. They are oppressed. And as we go through the promises of the Bible, as we wait for Christ to return, there will be, I think, times for all of us when it feels like God has forgotten us. What about this promise that we have in John 14? Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. He hasn't come back yet. What about the promise in Revelation 21? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We still cry, don't we? We still feel pain, don't we? Many of us will at Christmas. When, it, when life feels like winter, but never Christmas, and it will, as we wait for Christ to return, it's hard. And perhaps hardest of all is that gnawing doubt that it's not just that life is hard, but but where is God in all the hardness? Where are we with God's promises? Where, where is God as he thinks about us? Does God know about us? Does he remember us? Does he care about us? Or maybe we're just fools for having believed. My guess is we'll all wonder that at some point in our Christian lives. We'll Come and look again at Zechariah's song. Across the centuries, promise after promise, God has always remembered. And when the time is right, he always acts. I find Zechariah's own journey of faith deeply comforting. You might remember how last week when Mary saw an angel, her response was one of remarkable faith. She investigated further and her faith continued to grow and for many of us, that will be our experience. We hear God's word and the promises God makes and our response is instant faith. But for others of us, it's not that simple. Zechariah, we're told back in the start of Luke's gospel, was a righteous man. Verse 6, he observed God's commands blamelessly. He's not some rebellious pagan far from God, not at all. And yet when Zechariah encounters an angel, and the angel promises to him that his old wife will have a baby, we're told in verse 20, he did not believe. He did not believe. And he was struck dumb for nine months. I think a season of, of discipline for Zechariah, a time to think and ponder and reflect on what he's been told, but not a wasted time, because when his wife does give birth, Zechariah insists his name is John. 
in keeping with the words of the angel back at the start of the chapter. In other words, Zechariah has moved from a place of doubt to a place of confidence and trust in the words of God through the angel. And then his mouth is reopened and he can speak. But it took time, didn't it, for Zechariah? Nine months, a season of, aff of affliction for him to go through as he processed and meditated and weighed up the things he was being asked to consider. And so, yes, we might be like a Mary, where our faith is quick and instant, but we might be a Zechariah, where there's a wrestling, a grappling, a season of affliction even, and perhaps not because of a sin that we've committed, but yet God allows it to come to us to help us to grow in our faith. And so this morning, if we're more like a Zechariah than a Mary, and we're in a season of grappling, we hear this promise that God remembers, and we want to believe, but we just don't feel it in our hearts. Can I encourage you that that is a normal experience for God's people? We're not on our own. But can I encourage you to keep coming, to stick at it, to keep looking at God's word and God's promises, to keep wrestling and grappling and praying. And I'm confident God, like he did for Zechariah, will help move you from a place of confusion and doubt to a place of trust. And for all of us this morning, if our personal daily Bible reading has become a little stale, and it can at times, here's one thing we could try perhaps in the new year. As we come to read God's word for ourselves every day, we could particularly look out for promises he makes in his word. Perhaps you could keep a journal of the promises that we're reading about day after day. Because the Bible is a book that contains 66 different books. There are some 40 human authors that have written across centuries and centuries, and yet it is also one book with one divine author and one great storyline where God's promises arc across the centuries from beginning to end. And we can place ourselves in the middle of the story of his faithfulness. And so as we read and note and observe and see how he remembers, it's good for our faith to know that when we still wait for those promises to be fulfilled when Christ returns, we have every reason to believe he will. God remembers. That's the first thing we see about Zechariah's song, but there's, there's another reason why he's singing with such great joy. God remembers, but secondly, God saves. The book of Exodus describes how God rescued his people from Egypt. It was a redemption, freed from slavery. And in Zechariah's day, the people were longing for another deliverance, this time from the hands of the Romans. Well, look at verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. God is at work again. In fact, Zechariah speaks in the past tense because he's so certain that God will bring about his redemption plans. But this redemption will not be a freeing from Roman rule. No, it'll be much greater. And that becomes clear as Zechariah sings 
of the role his baby John will play in preparing the way for Mary's baby. John's role, verse 77, is to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Some of you may have heard of the story of Duke Reynold III. Duke Reynold lived in the 13th century in what is now modern-day Belgium. And he had a rather awkward relationship with a younger brother. In fact, they had a bit of a fight, and his younger brother won. And his younger brother captured Duke Reynold III and built a prison around him. But it was a rather odd prison. It had windows, and it had a, had a doorway with no door. And the younger brother put Duke Reynold into the center of the room, and he said to him, the door is open. If you walk through the doorway, you will walk away free anytime you want. The only problem was that the doorway was, was very narrow, and Duke Reynold III was a rather prosperously sized gentleman. He couldn't fit through, and his younger brother knew this, and he was a scheming younger brother because every day he made sure that his brother received a tasty banquet of food. And such was his appetite, Duke Reynold III could not resist tucking in every day. And for 10 years, he was unable to fit through the door. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. I have no idea if the story is true. Someone can come and tell me afterwards if it is. But it is a sobering picture of what is true, which is how sin enslaves us all. Sin within us, our own hearts, we, we, we see things that we should not want, but we cannot stop ourselves taking and lusting and grabbing. Again and again, our appetites get the better of us. Even if we know that what we're doing enslaves us, we cannot stop. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene in the course of human history, he was tempted by the devil, but he did not give in. Throughout his whole life, not once did he sin, always standing firm. And so when he did die on the cross, he was able to offer his life as a perfect sacrifice given in our place. The redemption fee to buy us out of slavery to our own sin, that we might be free. Of course, as we go through the Christian life and as the gospel continues to grip our hearts and the spirit works in us, we should see a change in our desires and affections, that we should want and long for the things that are right and good, not evil desires. But we are not redeemed by that transformation in us. They are the outworking of what Christ could only do in us. Only he can pay the redemption fee through his perfect life given for us. Zechariah couldn't have known all of this as he sings his song in Luke 1, but what his song is clear about is that he knows the kind of salvation we need. It is a salvation from sin. That's the redemption we need. And Mary's baby 
is the one to bring it. There are other enemies around. I mentioned how the world hates God's people. One day when Christ returns, he will save us from every threat, all enemies, not just the sin and the devil. But as Zechariah sings, his joy is not just that God remembers, but it's that God saves. He's also clear we don't deserve it. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. God is on the move. Winter is losing its grip. Darkness is giving way to light. Simply because that is what God is like. A God of tender mercy. Whatever our Christmas holds, however dark it might feel, and I know for some it will feel very dark, some of us have experienced life under the shadow of death in very real and very personal ways in recent months. Whatever our Christmas holds, I hope we can step back with Zechariah and be comforted with the true significance of Mary's baby. God remembers. God saves. But as we move to a close this morning, we're almost done. I want to just pick up one other thing that I think Zechariah would put before us. In fact, he tells us a key application, and it's there in verse 74. God's plan for his people is to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness for him all our days. You see, all this wonderful news of God remembering and, and God saving, it, it has a purpose. We are saved to serve. That's what verse 74 says. Uh, the word for serve has a sense of, of worship, and not just something we do for an hour on a Sunday, but it's a, a whole life lived, given over to the Lord Jesus. And we serve whatever or whomever we think saves us, don't we? If we think experience will save us from a boring life, then we give ourselves to pleasure. If we think money will save us, we give ourselves to earning and saving money. If we think the praise of other people will save us, then we give ourselves to managing our reputation. And a small view of Jesus will mean he gets relegated down the table of saviors somewhere to mid-table, which means that our desire to serve him with our whole lives is killed off. In fact, this morning we can do a bit of a, a heart diagnostic, can't we, as we reflect on this? If we have a small view of Jesus, then as I talk about how our lives should be given over to a full-hearted service and worship of Jesus, our hearts will be heavy, this morning, there'll be a this to that news. A bit like the rich ruler who thought money was a better master than Jesus. 
But if the words of Zechariah have begun to do their work in our hearts and we've begun to see something of the glory and majesty and wonder of Jesus who has come to save us and redeem us, then we'll begin to see how serving him is the beginning of joy. In the new year, we're going to be thinking much more about this whole life service that we are called to. But before we get to the new year, let's make sure we are rejoicing in the God who remembers and in the God who saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the journey of faith you took Zechariah on, even through a time of affliction. Father, we look to you for help. So often we find your world baffling and confusing. We don't understand your timings. We don't even know where you are at times. And so we ask that you use the hard things of our lives, the seasons that leave us baffled, to grow in us a confidence that you haven't forgotten us, that you have saved us in your Son, and that he will come back for us. And in his name we pray. Amen.